Hello and welcome to this all-new episode of Poetry Spoken Here. I am producer and technical director Jack Rossiter-Munley. And very quickly before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention as always that Poetry Spoken Here is produced by Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated, a small digital production company making podcasts about poetry, literature, and cultural history. You can find out more about Poetry Spoken Here and all of the other Cardboard Box Productions podcasts at cardboardboxproductionsinc.com. And, most excitingly, Cardboard Box Productions also has a newsletter called Unboxed that you can subscribe to, and that's a great place to get more information about the poets and writers featured on Poetry Spoken Here, and the people, poems, and subjects featured on all of the other Cardboard Box shows. So again, that's the newsletter Unboxed that you can subscribe to from CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com. On with the show! I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Clint Bruce. He's here because he translated some French poems in a part of a, a, a wonderful project for a book called Afro-Creole Poetry in French from Louisiana in radical Civil War-era newspapers. As the United States descended into Civil War, New Orleans' century-old community of French-speaking free people of color, wealthy, educated, and influential, struck back against increased racial hostility and erosion of their rights. Their chosen weapons were two radical newspapers, which we'll talk about. And collected here in this book for the first time are the poems printed in the newspaper. And they bring to light a network of intimate connections and vibrant dialogue. In verse modeled on French romantic poetry, more than 20 activist poets wrote poems back and forth to each other before a public audience, differing in important ways from the tone of the newspaper's prose. The poetry expands our understanding of the close-knit, politically progressive community of Creole, Jean de Couleur, and recovers their contributions to the fight for civil rights in the United States. I think you can see why I was excited to learn about this book and about the man who put it together, Clint Bruce. Now, he teaches at the University of St. Anne in Nova Scotia, where he holds a Canadian research chair in Acadian and transnational studies. And his own research focuses on Francophone identities in Louisiana and the Francophone Atlantic world. He got his PhD at Brown University, and I'm so glad you're here, Clinton. We could do this because I think this is just amazingly interesting history we don't know about. It's an important chunk of uh, the American story, so it's a pleasure to be here to share some of the the research and some of these really uh, stirring texts. Thank you so much. Actually, I'd like to start with the context. What was the Afro-Creole community of French-speaking people of color? So this, this community was born during the colonial period in Louisiana, which as many of your listeners probably know, has a different history than the, than the Eastern Seaboard, than the 13 colonies. Louisiana was uh, colonized by the French uh, starting at the turn of the 
of the 18th century, and then by the Spanish for 40 years uh, before it was sold to the United States. So this is, you know, some basic uh, sort of, you know, big dates in, uh, in early American history. But during that time, slavery as it was practiced um, allowed for a certain number of enslaved people to become free. And in that French-speaking uh, environments, they founded what could really truly be called a community uh, that developed through the 19th century uh, its own intellectual traditions. And by this time, and really into the 20th century, many of, the, many of them were French speaking. Uh, some of them also spoke a Louisiana Creole language, which is similar to Haitian Creole. And many of the, them, in fact, many of the, the poets featured in this volume had roots in colonial Haiti, in Saint-Domingue, when the Haitian Revolution broke out in the late 18th century under Toussaint Louverture against France. Um, there, was, there were huge waves of refugees and about uh, 13,000 of those refugees came to Louisiana, including free people of color, around the time that Louisiana was becoming a state. Um, in the first decade of the of the 19th century, mm -hmm. so in New Orleans and in some of the you know the outlying areas, uh, they found a home. They found they created institutions, they um, created uh, social organizations, and after the Civil War uh, broke out, and New Orleans was taken or liberated, depending on your point of view, uh, by the Union Army that opens up for them a possibility of participating in that grand project of reconstruction. So I've just traced a really sort of fast arc. This is a really complex community. So around the time of the Civil War, there were about 18,000 of these French speaking people of color in Louisiana, about 10,000 in New Orleans, and they're a small part of the of the city. You know, we're talking about uh, uh, the one of the large, you know, one of the larger cities in the United States at the time. Very busy seaport, uh, lots of immigration: Germans, Irish, Italians. There is an established French language community that still is very active in politics, and and the the, the Creoles of color or the gens de couleur. Um, Again, they had you know, sort of their own community life, and they also had restricted rights and suffered discrimination. That is the decades-long experience they're coming into uh, through uh, in the in the you know as the civil war breaks out. And one last note is that their international connections remain important. The founder of one of the newspapers, whom we'll discuss, had studied medicine in France. Others had traveled to Haiti. Uh, uh, some of the members of this community went to have careers in France because their opportunities were limited in the United States. Um, so there are some some elements to kind of situate where these folks are coming from. Yeah, it seems. I don't, I'd always heard that somehow I forget what, but New Orleans was really a unique place even to be a slave because the culture was somewhat different than the rest of the U.S. Uh, what, what did I read about that? I would say that there, there are certain plenty of points of overlapping, and then there are some real elements of, of divergence, as you just pointed out. Many of the 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 men who were involved in this literary enterprise, several of them, had fathers who were uh, white and free, of course, and mothers who were either free women of color, uh, but whose background immediately would have been in slavery. So all of them would have had enslaved forebears, mm -hmm. Ab absolutely. Some of them came from slaveholding families, and this is certainly reality of that community. Um, 
people of color in Louisiana who were free also owned slaves. Sometimes they purchased slaves because they were family members to free them. At other times, uh, they, they were planters, uh, or if they were living in the city, it was could be part of their domestic, domestic workforce. Uh, so bringing us to the context of the Civil War, despite that complexity, many of them fiercely opposed slavery, even though parts, segments of their community participated in it. And, you know, we can make an easy parallel. I mean, how many of us want to work for climate change? Everyone raises their hand. Many people do. How many of us participate in activities every day that contribute to climate change? We all raise our hands, right? You know, so we're all embedded in systems that are damaging and even oppressive, which is why when the civil war, you know, when, when reconstruction starts to happen, they step to the fore uh, and they say, we want to lead this fight for racial equality. Yeah, it was interesting that they did identify with those around them who were slaves. They were not. And at the same time, that idea about maintaining their international connections, like they're a cosmopolitan at the same time they were interested in the local scene. They were 100% world citizens. And more and more, as the 1860s moved along, saw their destiny in the American project. I would say that is something that the Civil War made possible for them. Um, you know, that's that's sort of a big abstract statement, right? Uh, but uh, you know, we go from so I'll talk about the these two newspapers um, in which oh, these this body of um, we'll say around eighty poems was published. It's a lot of poetry, Charlie. I'm just going to say, it's, you know, it's sort of a it's lot. A to, <laughs> it's a pretty big book, actually. Um, you know, so I want every, you know everyone who's listening to imagine. New Orleans, a Confederate city, it was not overly Confederate, uh, but certainly by the time the the, Fed, the the Union Army arrives in April of 1862, people had become attached, and I'll say, you know, white people, the dominant class, had become attached to this idea of having a separate uh, slave-holding nation. And then you have this group of free people of color who see an opportunity to better their society and for them to have a better place in their society for one, but also to be the avant-garde of black people overall in New Orleans, in Louisiana, and perhaps in the South. They saw for themselves a, a real leadership role and they exercise this leadership role in a number of ways. And this is including people who wrote poetry that we're gonna you know, get into uh, very quickly. They became involved in, in local politics. Uh, the people who uh, who I'm discussing were among the members, the, the founding members of the Republican Party of Louisiana, obviously the abolitionist party. And they founded a press, which was um, comprised of two newspapers, uh, The Union, or L'Union, started out only in French in 1862. And in 1864, its successor paper by the same team essentially was called the New Orleans Tribune, La Tribune de la Nouvelle Orléans. There, there is today a New Orleans Tribune that is a community newspaper in the tradition of the 1860s Tribune. And these two newspapers were militant newspapers. They, you know, they they were going to, uh, you know, fight for civil rights, um, advocate for uh, black units in in the in the Union Army, which were formed. They were called the Native Guards. Advocate for suffrage um, after the abolition of slavery, for which they advocated. And these two newspapers brought together some truly brilliant 
truly community-oriented uh, and truly talented human beings. Um, the One of the founders, uh, Louis-Charles Eroudané, as I mentioned, he was a doctor trained in Paris. When the 1848 revolution happened in Paris, he was there. Uh, he's practicing in New Orleans. There were a number of educators, teachers in the community of color. And all of these folks were steeped in French literary culture and intellectual traditions. And what that meant in the first half of the 19th century um, was certainly the legacies of the Enlightenment, um, you know, reason to advance uh, human progress, but also the, the quest for authenticity uh, that existed in literary romanticism. And uh, their poetry really brings these elements together with their own particular cultural background. So I'm gonna take us straight to a poem because what, they, what you're gonna find in this book um, is that poetry became a vehicle for expressing the world that they wanted to see. So they're in the thick of, you know, all of this politics, uh, you know, for the first couple of years, the, the war is still going on and they have to look out and say, well, what kind of world do we want to be in, right? Um, and this is happening throughout the poetry. Part of the poems, there's a section at the beginning called Poetry as Prophecy, where they really discuss what's our poetry going to do, in fact, right? And so I want to share with you a, a short poem that discusses what poetry is going to do, and it's going to take revenge on the oppressors of this world. I mean, it's, 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 it's that sort of blunt. It's by an anonymous poet. I'm going to read my English translation. It, and uh, it was published in December of 1862, and the title is Tyrants Before the Judgment of history. When history shows that merit is oppressed while crime is honored and virtue is suppressed, at such misdeeds, such crimes, we take offense. We'd prefer to be buried in a chasm of ignorance, a foolish wish for memories of vice give memories of good a higher price. The soul on virtues weighed against sin's pains with greater interest pauses than remains. No, evil cannot by remorse be set right, nor be absolved and hid in death's dark night. There is an avenger whose unrelenting hand shatters the tomb and makes the guilty stand, saddened by the shame of truth's harsh light before the judgment of the reader's spite. Our voice denounces both his life and his crimes we curse his ashes on behalf of his many victims. We forgive heaven whose knowing justice gave unto the wicked life beyond the grave and forging punishment from former delights shows him in worldly triumphs, hellish sights, which torturing his nights, poisoning his days, like a sword overhanging, threaten him always. May all the oppressed take heart in this idea. It's great. It makes me think of, you know, this is like a content-wise predecessor to contemporary slam poetry. <laughs> it really gets up there in your face about the issues and is not afraid to say what's what. So this poem is, it, it remains a little abstract, right? So it's just sort of discussions of oppression. Others are, I would say, very much, we can see in contemporary, um, uh, com you know, politically committed slam poetry, definitely, you know, echoes. I, I absolutely agree. Um, others really take on the racial issue much more directly, right, and really discuss prejudice and how that played out and how it makes people feel um, and and the bare injustice that's that's there. You know, so a number of these, of these writers were dissident Catholics, 
meaning that, um, you know, they had been brought up in the church, but became a bit frustrated with some of the dogmatic strictures and also some of the practices that they saw, right? Now, one of the interesting elements underlying all of this poetry, which I really, we won't get into to go into today, is that uh, many of these writers actually joined a new religious movement that was sweeping 19th century Europe and America called spiritualism, which was communing with the dead through seances. And that really inspires a lot of their poetry. So there's a, there's a, there's a religious element, a mystical element that is sort of alongside this rational element, you know, a sort of an enlightenment project of destroying prejudice and that sort of thing. Um, and there's a really a desire to reform institutions. One of my favorite and most touching poems was written, um, you know, the title is called To Father Shokan, who is a visiting priest. It's also an anonymous poem. It's, it's signed with a pen name, Peter the Hermit. That's a medieval reference. And the, the poem that I'm about to read describes what it's like for a black man to go into mass and to have to uh, endure the humiliation of segregated pews, right? Of segregated seating. So, um, you know, just to kind of prepare everyone. So he's going to be listening to the sermon, you know, that preaches these beautiful human and perhaps universal values while he looks around and sort of sees the segregation uh, around him. So I'm going to read To Father Shokan by Peter the Hermit, published in April of 1867. My reverend father, most dear, a Negro, unknown and shunned, last week did happen to hear your rainbow-colored words, which left him stunned. A sudden he did feel faith's lightning strike his being's core. He was just about to repeal his complacent maybe and take up the cross once more. But this man, this Negro, O reverend father, having let himself be carried away by delight at the pompous noise of your language most austere, from the pulpit then detached his heart and his sight, and that sovereign call that he had happened to hear as though a divine whisper pronouncing his name became nothing more than a dying flame of fleeting memory dissolved by reality, for he recalled that within this very church, the apostles of Christ permit that some besmirch his name by assigning to certain pews, not hardened sinners or fiends with tyrannical views, but ordinary folks whose only crime, whose only sin in the eyes of oppressive white men is to dwell in black skin. It falls to you to denounce this grave injustice. From the temple, Jesus drove the money changers, expel and turn these wicked strangers to truth and avoid appearing to be their accomplice. Remembering the poet, unknown and shunned, whom your rainbow colored words so stunned, you must tell them, dearest reverend father, that any white man who refuses a Negro as brother forfeits the right to refer to God as his father. I must compliment you on your selections. That's really right on. 
Thank you. And, you know, getting back to, you know, I I really liked your slam comparison earlier because a lot of these, a lot of the poems stick to um, a sort of standard meter that I've largely translated into either into iambic pentameter or hexameter, giving myself a little leeway. This one has some really short, tight lines, right, that that hammer a point that the home of, that hammer home the point of the, the racial discrimination. Yeah, the only sin is living in black skin. And, and, you know, I had a lot of, I was really struck a couple of weeks ago when you had Jessica uh, Care Moore on your show, and uh, she she um, said a sentence that I wrote down immediately, um, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but she said that, you know, sounds are what connect people to poetry, right? And I, and I hope that, if, you know, readers who pick up this book, um, who don't read French, um, or if they do read French, absolutely, it's there too. I did a lot, I tried to do a lot of work, you know, with, with sound repetition, um, sometimes strung throughout the lines a bit more than in the, than in the French, you know, and we could go into, you know, my, my reasons for that. Um, it certainly shows up here and in some others, but, uh, you know, one thing I would tell, and I'm sort of trying not to sort of oversell, you know, the work, you know, the, the work I've done translating because other translations could be better than mine for sure. Um, uh, But being aware of, you know, these poets craft as poets of color in the 19th century, facing a world that saw them as intellectually inferior, right? And so writing finely crafted French poetry is a way way to show, you know, we can do this too, right? We can do this as well. It comes through and and hearing little subtleties about translation are to me always enjoyable because it's you got to make a decision on every line, on every word. And besides the rhythm, how, what do you want to do with the sound? How close do you want to stay literally to the original and all that sort of thing? So it's really uh, interesting to hear. All issues. Um, and I think for, you know, for people who can read French, if you sort of follow line by line, I would say most lines you can say, okay, yeah, he's doing that. Yeah. Okay. This line, this line. And then you sort of hit a bump where, you know, I was keeping that literal meaning and then poetically it stopped working. So, mm. okay, I need to find a substitute metaphor. Otherwise, poetically, it's no longer a poem, right? It becomes a prose translation and that's, yeah. you know, that's not going to work out. May I ask, have you done um, literary translation before? Well, not at all. I heard I you, your friend. lots of poetry in translation. I heard um, your friend's pronunciation earlier and it sounded pretty spot on. That's why I asked. Oh, that was my one year in high school. I guess. <laughs> it stuck with you well. By the way, people listening, I just want to remind you, if this is too specialized for you to acquire this particular book, you surely have a library in your neighborhood or at your friendly local college or university. And you just might want to get them to acquire Afro-Creole poetry in French from Louisiana's radical Civil War era newspapers. And you could surely put in an order for this. It's the kind of thing that it fills in so many gaps. I mean, there's this gap in history about this and the information about the Creole community there. And then there's the poetry too. And the message about that and the newspapers and also that crazy attack on the constitutional gathering. Say a little bit about that. To me, that was like hearing about this was like, whoa, I did not know this one. Another atrocity. You're right. This is uh, an atrocious moment in in Southern and American history. In July, late July of 1866, um, a constitu- a state constitutional convention was reconvened, whose uh, and its main goal was to grant universal male suffrage. Women's suffrage was not on the table 
at this point. And, and the reason why that had become a goal was, yes, there was certainly idealism there, but it was also a measure of political expediency. Now, after, after the war, former Confederates returned to power all over the South. Um, and, and in fact, I'm going to read a short selection in a minute uh, from, a, from a longer poem. Uh, the mayor of New Orleans was the same mayor uh, when the Confederacy actually was, was founded. He was real, you know, he was reelected. Uh, and so all of these former Confederates had returned to power very quickly and started enacting draconian uh, discriminatory laws in Louisiana. They were called the Black Codes across the South. Louisiana had its own Code Noir that went back to the colonial period. And so the the Republican Party and other progressives and moderates uh, soon realized, well, this is going to degenerate uh, rapidly. and so reconvening a constitutional convention, I won't go into you know, sort of all the details of it, some of them are there in the book, was a way to ensure that this large group, we're talking almost half of Louisiana's population, uh, this large group of, of, of black men, black male citizens, should, should have been citizens, uh, could have their voice uh, be, be heard, have their say. Um, and that eventually did happen a couple of years later. But what happened in 1866 was that when this convention was opened, it was attacked. It was attacked by a mob, and many members of that mob were composed of New Orleans police and auxiliary police officers who were, by you know, in in, in great measure, uh, former Confederates, you know, Confederate soldiers. Um, Nearly 50 people died on the the uh, on the day of Monday, July 30th, 1866, and in the in the following days. You know, many people were taken to to hospital. The newspaper, the Tribune, at this time, they were on the front lines there. And in fact, the editor in chief, uh, who's a figure we won't have time to discuss, but he was a Belgian. He was a white man from Belgium uh, who was a scientist who happened to fall in with these uh, you know with these radical Creoles. He was dodging bullets in the convention hall. Uh, he wrote letters home about it. He wrote accounts, uh, and readers are going to find out that one of my little archival discoveries was that I found the missing issues of the Tribune from the days immediately following uh, the, the massacre. Of 1866. For some reason, researchers thought that they had been lost, and this has been sort of printed, and they were sitting in a folder in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, so I had a, I, uh, you know, it's some pretty harrowing accounts in the, in the days following. And on the level of the poetry, no, go ahead, Charlie, no, I think you want to. Resonating with today, I happen to read in your book about how there was a battle to define the narrative of what happened sort of like the Black Lives Matter. And there were all these people, if you read their narrative, the police were exemplary and wonderful and maintained, tried to maintain order and control the mob. And if you read the other account, you found out that there was a massacre. It's incredible. The parallels around what we're being fed by the media and depending on you know which media sphere um, you're, you're rolling around in, is incredible. Uh, so there's not only on the Tribune side this uh, brave posture of condemning police violence and violence condoned by city authorities against black convention members and whites associated with them and innocent black people in the street. I mean, it really just sort of became a free for all. Mm. Um, you know, those parallels to things we see today are. Um, 
shocking in the sense that you'd think that in over 150 years, we would have moved past a lot of this. And unfortunately we haven't. And that's really one of the reasons that, that, that for me, translating these poems during the, the years of Black Lives Matter um, gave me, sadly enough, material to certainly sustain the late nights, you know, of sitting down, sitting down yeah. with poems, you know, I would, I would say, you know, I need to translate this poem and then, you know, something heartbreaking and uh, horrifically unjust would happen in the news and we can, you know, name names of people who are, who were murdered. Uh, and I would say, okay, you know, there, there's, there were, there were voices from the 19th century who still inform this moment. So I'm going to read a short selection from a poem called To the Conservatives. To the Conservatives was written by a school teacher um, at a prominent school for children of color whose name was Joanny Kesti. His father was from um, Sicily, in fact, and his mother was a free woman of color, and he was a professor of languages, an excellent writer. Um, he wrote some prose works and he wrote several poems in this collection. And he starts out his first line, uh, it, uh, it goes like this, my dear conservatives, may heaven conserve you. I love you as brothers, though you do not love me. And he spends the rest of the poem accusing not only the, I'd say the reactionary elements, but those who would pretend to be the friends of free people of color and who were just, you know, using them. And I know that many people in the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, certainly feel that the mainstream Democratic Party today mm. does that, right? So I'm going to... Um, uh, read just a couple of stanzas uh, from the end where he says to the conservatives, you think you can hold us down. You don't even compare to the former slaveholders. So you, you, have, you can't stand in the path of progress. So I'm going to read the last few stanzas. And they were titans, these lords of slavery. Talent and power and gold did they possess. And you have nothing, reconstructionists yet still oppose the steady march of progress. We mourn our martyrs, your victims without redress, while you, once proud, without a blush of shame, eager to climb to the lucrative heights of success, now court us, hat in hand, to advance your aim. Stop begging today, stop pandering for our votes. Your wrongs require time to run its course, to forget Monroe's malfeasance, his police cut cutthroats. In short, the unworthiness of so craven a force. You surely can find among you a few Peters, some Judases fed full on Confederate bread. But in the hour of truth, these false brothers will shrink from the scorn heaped upon their heads. So again, as I mentioned, there's it's it's topical, right? He actually names the mayor. He names Mayor John T. Monroe, and he refers to the massacre earlier. A little earlier, he refers to the 30th of July, the date. And when I think about you know pandering for our votes and pretending to be our friend, you know, and the the issues that were raised by by Black Lives Matter, not only with police brutality, but also how the political class you know, treats, you know, tries to sort of say, okay, you know, we'll take care of it, right? Uh, and then you know, yeah. do we see movements? Well, you, you had said you were had going to do a little bit of French. We will wrap up with a funny poem. I think that would be okay. uh, good after some of these, uh, uh, these heavy. Uh, heavy, absolutely. And there, and there's a plenty well, of sentimental poetry here and some light ones. So I'm going to read a poem that I found in, in, in an archival collection in Massachusetts called Idealism, Materialism. This poem is by the most prolific uh, writer in this collection. His name was Adolphe Duhart or Duart. 
and it describes a Creole dance. I'm going to read it in French, and I'm going to go straight over to the English, and we'll wrap up with that. Beautiful. Au bal, minuit sonnait. Elle était brune et rose. Ses cheveux étaient noirs et ses grands yeux d'azur souples comme un roseau. Son corps avait la pose que donna Raphaël à la Vierge au front pur. Sa voix avait les sons d'une flûte sonore telle qu'une grenade entrouverte au soleil et qui semble sourire au rayon qu'il adore. Sa bouche sensuelle avait l'éclat vermeil. Et moi, tremblant, ému, je n'osais pas lui dire de mon cœur cœur palpitant, la vive passion. Je craignais d'encourir son dédain ou son ire, ou qu'elle disparût comme une vision. Cependant, je lui dis, « Oh, je t'aime, douze anges, comme savent aimer les esprits dans le ciel de cet amour brûlant, majestueux, étrange, que pour Marie avait l'archange Gabriel. Laisse tomber sur moi ton beau regard limpide pour que je croie encore à mon ange gardien. Oh. » Mon cher, que c'est stupide. Fais-moi un gombo plutôt vrai. Ça me fera plus de bien. So that's the French. And then you can tell the tone changes at the end because the woman that he's fallen in love with at the dance decides to ask, to ask him a favor. And that's what we're going to see coming in, in at the end of the English of idealism, materialism. So here we go for the translation. At the dance, midnight rang. She was brown and pink. Her hair was black, her wide eyes of azure, and supple like a reed, her body made one think of the pose of Raphael's virgin, of brow so pure. Her voice possessed the sounds of a lively flute, like a pomegranate opened under the sun, offering up to its rays a smiling salute, her sensual mouth with ruby brilliance shone. And I, touched and trembling, dared not explain the passion stirring within my fluttering heart. I feared provoking either wrath or disdain, or that like a vision, she'd suddenly depart. Yet I told her, oh, I love you, sweet angel, as strongly as spirits do in the heavens above, just as for Mary, the archangel Gabriel did feel a burning, strange and majestic love. Grace me, I pray, with your gaze, lovely and clear, so that once again I'll believe in my guardian angel. Oh, she yawned. How stupid you are, my dear. Buy me a gumbo instead. That'll do good for real. It's <laughs> funny. So in the French, you know, there's really almost this element of the, the Creole language that's there. There are not a lot of funny poems in this collection. So I was happy when I, you know, stumbled, you know, stumbled upon this one, you know, and besides that, we've got this whole almost masquerade ball, uh, you know, and describes her skin color. She's a Creole belle, you know, she's fabulous. Right. She's fabulous. You know. So thank you again so much for letting me share, you know, share these works. I really believe that these writers uh, are, you know, waiting for their audience today. And, and this will play a part in that. Certainly hope so. Co folks, you've been listening to Poetry Spoken here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. Our guest today has been Clint Bruce talking about this fabulous translation book that he did of Afro-Creole poetry from back around the Civil War time. Be with us again next time. To let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time 
to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. Yeah.